off on another episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast, broadcasting from the base at La Madre Mountain, just south of Area 51. My name is Ryan, the original overseer of the airwaves, bringing you an epic episode today. Today on the podcast, we have Charles Lear. If you don't know who Charles Lear is, get ready. He has a new book called The Flying Saucer Investigators. The Flying Saucer Investigators is a book of history. It's about the people involved in the mystery of the flying saucers. Mostly the investigators, but also the witnesses, some of whom were profoundly affected. The period covered is what has been called the Golden Age of Flying Saucers, which begins in 1947, of course, after the sighting that year by businessman pilot Kenneth Arnold, and ends in 1969 with the termination of the U.S. Air Force's investigation, which existed for most of its duration, known as Project Blue Book. The investigators ranged from kids with saucer clubs to serious-minded individuals with connections in government. There were military personnel assigned to take flying saucer reports and follow up on them, and the U.S. Congress was moved to hear arguments for a federally funded study of flying saucers on two occasions. The history of this golden age is presented using newsletters, magazines, case files, official documents, newspaper articles, film footage, and archived recordings from television and radio. Some of the cases the investigators looked into are presented using nothing but the facts. As they were recorded, without speculation or sensationalism, and even the diehard skeptic may be left wondering by many of them. Charles Lear, welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, We've had quite the quandary trying to connect. I've wanted to talk to you for quite some time about your new book, The Flying Saucer Investigators. And um, without going into detail, you've been super, super easy to deal with because it's just been one nightmare after the other trying to connect. But we're finally connected, so this is a good thing. Um, What took you down this path to write this book and to set it in the golden age of flying saucers, as you mentioned in the book? Um, Okay, well, I've uh, been writing a uh, blog for Martin Willis over a podcast UFO for about four years. And uh, Martin uh, suggested, uh, he says, you know, I I do it once a week, so that's a lot of material. And Martin suggested I put put together a book, maybe a compilation of the blogs or something. And I actually got it in my idea to, um, along the way, I'd been exploring the actual flying saucer investigators. And my uh, favorite period is really the, the 50s and the 60s. Um, and uh, another thing that uh, really got me interested in uh, certain characters was John Keel's book, uh, The Mothman Prophecies. 
Uh, he talks about these guys that sounded really interesting, like Gray Barker, Jim Mosley, Ivan T. Sanderson. And, uh, you know, when I remember reading them, the book, years back, I wonder who these guys are. They sound really interesting, especially Gray Barker and uh, Jim Mosley, who uh, seem to have a lot of fun at John Keel's expense. Um, and so I, I got the idea to uh, write about the investigators, and it occurred to me a perfect period would be 1947 and 1969, uh, which is pretty much uh, Kenneth, yeah, which is Kenneth Arnold's uh, first sighting on June 24th, 1947, up until the uh, termination of Project Blue Book. Uh, I date that from the uh, press release, December 17th, 1969. Uh, so he, uh, Martin had, um, <clears throat> uh, Calvin Parker, uh, one of the, the, the other guys, uh, one of the guys from the Pascagoula, Mississippi incident um, had uh, Martin, uh, a blogger of Martin's had uh, written an article about the Pascagoula incident, and this guy wrote him, hey, that was a really good article. Thank you very much, Calvin. And Martin says, is this Calvin Parker? And he said, well, yes, sir, it is. So Martin uh, got in touch with Calvin Parker, and then he got Calvin Parker in touch with Philip Mantle, and uh, uh, Calvin was convinced to write a book. And uh, uh, this story is interesting enough. Uh, Calvin said, okay, um, here's the deal. Uh, I'm sorry, Philip Mantle has a uh, publishing company called Flying Disc Press. So um, Calvin said, okay, I'll let you, uh, I'll, I'll write the book and let you publish it, but here's the rule, you're, you're not allowed to edit a single word of it. <laughs> and Philip agreed to it. And Calvin locked himself in a room for two weeks and banged out this huge book. And the book did really well. So um, Philip Mantle uh, was very grateful to Martin for hooking him up. And so Martin introduced me to Philip Mantle. I pitched uh, the idea of uh, writing this book to Philip, and Philip went for it. So uh, it was off to the races. That is so neat. And I, I love Calvin Parker. He is a past guest. And talk about a guy that it, there, it's impossible not to believe him. It is one of those cases that I, I talk to a lot of people, and I don't know if I'm the perfect example of somebody who can tell when somebody's kind of spinning a yarn but calvin is so just so real and his experiences are so real and there was a lot going on back then it, it really is the golden age or golden era of of flying saucers and you mentioned that this all starts in uh 1947 with kenneth arnold who reported seeing i believe nine objects moving yep. at high speeds over washington's mount rainier now, when this was widely publicized, how did how did people take it? Was this was this kind of far fetched for people? The the variety that uh, that your average American. Uh, what? Uh, I'm sorry, Kenneth Arnold sighting. Yeah, the Mount Rainier. Um, it seems. Yeah, like... Well, well, initially it was you know thought that maybe he saw something military. Nobody had any idea. He thought it might have been military. 
So the the idea that this was anything you know strange or unusual or something from outer space really it didn't come up until a little later and was just sort of um, kind of an afterthought. And then you know it wasn't uh, eventually. Uh, Arnold uh, complained that people were coming up to him. Aren't you the guy who saw the uh, the men from space, the men from Mars? And so, but initially, you know, it, it, he just saw something strange. Uh, but you know, once once um, this, it was also the perfect time of year. Uh, summer is always slow for the newspapers, so they call it the silly season. So flying saucer reports are, are good filler. Um, so they'll, they'll, they, they printed just about everything. I mean, you know, a, a guy found a, uh, a guy, a priest came forward with a saw blade and said that this thing flew through the air and uh, hit his chapel. It was, it was like an obvious saw blade. And yet uh, it, this made the paper and they called everything discs. Uh, even if you had a six pointed radar target, um, covered in aluminum foil, they still called it a disc. Uh, so, you know, the, the newspapers was, were just filled with flying disc stories. And uh, that summer, it was saucer mania. And it just kind of got embedded into the uh, public's consciousness and never left. And, you know, this is so reminiscent. If you don't know your history, you're, you're destined to repeat it. And it does seem as if this is so reminiscent of ATIP and OSAP and you know, how the Tic Tac is now in the media. And it, it seems that when you report seeing nine objects glowing bright blue, flying in a V formation of speeds, I think up to 1,700 miles an hour, Arnold said, there's some interest from the military. And it's, it's strange that that's what it takes to uh, get serious development of trained eyes on this and and start historically you know writing things down um of you know it's just not taken seriously by the u.s government it seems unless you have an instance like this one yeah i personally don't care whether the government takes it seriously or not i hung out in <laughs> fringe uh, societies my whole life I'm an old punk rocker, et cetera. So respectability has never been an issue with me. Mm -hmm. um, it, yeah, but in terms of the history, I think one of the... Sh you still have MUFON, uh, and, and you still have individual, like people like um, uh, uh, Stan Gordon. Um, you know, you still have researchers who are collecting reports and keeping archives and maintaining a history. Um, I think that's really important, but those groups are getting uh, fewer and fewer. I mean, Stan Gordon's really getting up there, and a lot of the older investigators who actually keep these archives are getting up there. Uh, so, you know, there, hopefully there are young investigators still maintaining archives. Uh, I've, I've found, personally, like the, uh, the I've seen the... Uh, Martin also introduced me to David Marler, so David Marler has extensive archives in uh, New Mexico. I lived in New Mexico for a year and a half uh, recently uh, for <laughs> obvious reasons. Uh, I left Queens March 2020, so you can guess why. Um, and uh, I, I was just there. I hung out with him for three hours. And like the Blue Book 
files. And, yeah, okay, uh, you know, you get a card, you get some newspaper clippings, but the he's also got the Center for UFO Studies files he, and uh, the NICAP files, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, um, and a lot of uh, files from other investigators who have uh, donated to him uh, for him to curate. And those files are so much more interesting. Uh, the in-depth uh, transcriptions of witness interviews. I've seen some like packed full of police reports uh, and the newspaper clippings from the period. I mean, they're extensive and detailed. So I found the private investigators, uh, in terms of documenting the history, have done a far better job than the uh, the government has. I, you know, I could not agree more. I think you're you're completely right about that. The government seems to hide these things away, and then. They're lost to time, so to speak, in a lot of cases. And I think David... They, also, they don't have a consistent protocol either. I mean, the, the recent hero, hearing, Scott Bray was repeatedly saying, uh, we're destigmatizing reporting and uh, coming up with a protocol to report. So if it's stigmatized and you have no protocol, how are you getting the reports? Yeah. And I think David Marler is an excellent example. I loved his uh, book, Triangular UFOs. I thought that was really yeah. well done. Mm -hmm. And now, in your opinion, this is something that I think a lot of people wonder about. What is the best way to archive this material? Because it, it's kind of a tough thing to do. Uh, I uh, Well, I, uh, David Marler is doing it. Actually, there, there are extensive archives. That's one thing I did in my book is part of the... Uh, I footnoted... Just about, yeah, I footnoted it extensively um, and uh, put a whole bunch of things under what I call the according to umbrella. Uh, so I very, very, very little speculation on my part, or and uh, I try to present just the facts. So I did extensive footnoting as close to the original sources as possible. But part of my... Uh, part of the reason I did that is to give the reader a chance to go find this stuff for themselves. And there are archives all over the web. Uh, you've got uh, the Archives for the Unexplained in Sweden, which has a huge physical archive, uh, but they have a lot of uh, good stuff online as well. Um, and uh, there's uh, no U and Northern Ontario UFO Research uh, Society, um, I think that's one gentleman, I forget his name, but he, he's got a lot of really good old stuff, original magazine articles, and uh, they're all over the place. There's archives.org. You can find Wendy Connors um, uh, uh, UFO audio. Uh, she made an extensive collection of uh, uh, audio, UFO-related audio recordings. Um, you can find uh, Woodrow Derenberger's uh, first um, uh, interview the, the day after he had his encounter with Indrid Cold on mm -hmm. YouTube. And it's all over the place. So, uh, you know, I, I, physical archives are, are an absolute pleasure. Um, but the people who have the physical archives are more and more moving to make them digital and accessible. Uh, from an armchair. Uh, but I, to get back to your question, I'm sorry, I took the long way around. Um, you know, I'd, having a, 
having a group or an individual, uh, a group is better with a network uh, that they can send to a centralized location and have people at that centralized location, you know, put all this stuff in a file, in a filing cabinet, I, you know, I, I think is uh, the best way, mm-hmm. ultimately. I think you're right. I think physical, not only is it more accurate and, you know, drawings, etc. cetera, uh, a lot of people have, uh, quote unquote, lost information through digital means. And I find that that that's I don't I don't want to call it more risky, but it, it does seem like a, a lot of the things are not as highlighted as in physical and physical has its own, obviously, you know, fires, et cetera, floods, things can take it out, but that's a great answer. And I love the injured cold. I'm glad you mentioned that. That is one of my most, you know, I think it's one of the most intriguing stories I've heard. And, uh, if for our listeners, could you kind of go into that a little bit? That's, I, I find that a lot of people don't know about that. And it's, it's one of the, one of the mighty ones. Yeah, and, and it, it takes a weird turn, too. <laughs> uh, what happened is uh, Woodrow Derenberger, that's a, uh, an appliance salesman, uh, he, the, he worked in the shop, but he also went on the road as a um, traveling salesman. So he was on his way back. To, he lived in Parkersburg, West Virginia, uh, no, Mineral Wells, West Virginia. And he was on his way back home. And this car, what he thought was a car, passed him. And then it turned in front of him and traveled sideways and then slowed to a stop and forced him to stop. He pulled off to the side of the road. A door opened up. This humanoid got out. Uh, the craft lifted up. He described it as being shaped like a uh, the shade on the kerosene lantern. And this gentleman came out in... Uh, black clothing and seemed to be wearing a, a shirt of shiny metallic kind of material underneath of it. Um, Derenberger said he had a pleasant expression on his face and he told Derenberger to roll down his window. And here's one of the weird parts. Uh, Derenberger said he then came over to the passenger side and spoke to him telepathically through the closed window. <laughs> and uh, he asked him, uh, you know, what do you do? I, do you work for a living? Um, and uh, he asked what uh, uh, all the lights were in this one direction. And Derenberger replied that that was Parkersburg. We call that a town. And Cold said, where I come from, we call that a gathering. Uh, so they had this telepathic conversation. And then Cold said, you know, um, Go tell people what you've seen. I'll come back and uh, I'll back you up. I'll tell you that, you know, I'll let people know that uh, you're not uh, making this up. Uh, and so the craft came down, cold went in, craft takes off. Derenberger goes back, you know, goes back to his house. His wife knows something's up. And then he tells her the story and she says, well, you, you should call the police. So he calls the police. Uh, he wrote a book about this called Visitors to Lamulus or I think visitors from Lamulus. Um, and uh, he describes um, talking until he, he got too shaky to talk and his wife took over. Uh, the, the police apparently told him that other people had reported this craft and they didn't laugh it off. 
And the next day, people came to, he was working in the shop, people came to the shop. And one guy was the, uh, I think, a producer uh, or a reporter from a, a news program on the local news station and said, you know, would you be willing to be interviewed on air? And he was. And he told this story on air the very next day, and you can find it on YouTube. Um, so if the story stopped right there, you'd be, okay, yeah, sure. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, I, I, he went on. Uh, Derenberger went on uh, with his story, and uh, the first people to hear the, the rest of the story were Gray Barker and John Keel. Um, they were looking into the Mothman mystery, but along the way they said, well, you know, we, we should, uh, Barker had already interviewed Derenberger, and so they went over, and uh, Derenberger said, okay, uh, you know, but first uh, the, the, the humanoid told um, Derenberger his name was Colt, that's all he said, uh, and now Derenberger in front of uh, Barker and Keel said he gave him a first name, Indrid, and that uh, they visited and talked. And at the time, Derenberger's house was, his whole property was filled with people uh, hoping to get a look at a spaceman or maybe get a shot at a spaceman. Some of them were carrying guns. And um, Derenberger started telling the story about them talking and said they came from a planet called Lamulos. Uh, where the people were very little to no clothing because it got hot. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he went on to say, uh, you know, I got, that they might come down and uh, visit. And, yeah, and the, so the story went on that uh, in Derenberger's book, he wrote that um, he, he had a, uh, somebody, uh, apparently a ghostwriter, I forget the guy's name, uh, in the first edition of the book, it, it's, uh, as narrated by um, Woodrow Derenberger and written down by, I forget the guy's name. Um, but in any case, in the book, he talks about going to the planet and <laughs> that the space people uh, drove around in Volkswagens and mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, uh, the people on the planet weren't comfortable until he got nude. So he took off all his clothes and they were comfortable around him. So the story gets really, really strange. And <laughs> Aaron Berger's life kind of fell apart after that. Um, but I think it's a, there are other tales like that where you'll have like something that seems to have a kernel of truth to it, like something really happened. And then maybe something went wacky with the witness's mind and they just kept adding to this for attention or whatever, or who knows, maybe Derenberger thought this stuff was really happening to him. So it's definitely a mystery. It's as silly as the story gets. It's really intriguing. It really is. And I like, I like the, uh, I, I like the kind of writing and I love John Keel. And this is a perfect, perfect kind of, uh, loop around back to what we were discussing originally because John Keel also had a sort of rejection of the extraterrestrial hypothesis like J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée. And I think they were all initially not rejecting it, but certain things they found along the way, maybe stories of Volkswagens on different planets, etc., um, reinforced this. 
Is that erroneous to assume, or, or how do you think they drew that conclu conclusion of the rejection of the extraterrestrial hypothesis in general? Um, I, I wouldn't say they entirely rejected it, but they, what made them different from a lot of the investigators is that they would um, they wouldn't ignore the stuff that didn't fit in with the narrative. So mm. if you've got a narrative that these are nuts and bolts craft being piloted by extraterrestrials from other planets, and then you hear that when the witness got on the ship, they saw bunk beds that looked like they were made on Earth and a, a, a wooden radio. Uh, a, a lot of uh, there were would be some investigators, especially those who are writing books and trying to make money, uh, who would leave that stuff out because it didn't fit the narrative and made the story seem screwy. Whereas Keel said, this is a, a significant thing. If they're say if they they think they actually saw that, you shouldn't discount it and you should make that you know part of uh, the experience, part of the phenomenon, which. You know, it may mean the phenomena is uh, extra specially weird, uh, but, you know, don't discount that. And Keel was also uh, open to what he called the silent contactees. Contactees got a really bad name uh, uh, because of uh, George Adamski and uh, the circus that grew up around him and the other Georges, George Van Tassel and George King. Um so, you know, people didn't want to touch contact East stories with a 10-foot pole, whereas Keel was open to them, especially ones that didn't seek publicity. Um, so, yeah, and then, yeah, uh, Valet and uh, Heineck came around to this idea later. I don't think directly influenced by Keel, but uh, they uh, must, have, uh, must have read some of Keel's writings on this. And, uh, yeah, so they... Uh, Filet tied it into fairy lore, um, and Heineck just—he was open to the idea that this was uh, also from uh, Kiel that this was some sort of consciousness that coexisted with us. Yes, and I think I'm—I'm I'm glad that you kind of uh, set me straight on that because the phenomenon—I believe they use different terms. You know, they—they. They, they used ultra-terrestrial and interdimensional, and these were these were earth-shattering terms at the time, because up until that point, it was just little green men. Yeah, I actually said on one podcast that you know that narrative is actually sort of comforting, and the the, the, the host was aghast. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, the idea that this is something tangible, physical, something we could understand, uh, creatures with a motive. Uh, isn't that a lot more comfortable that uh, some sort of consciousness that coexists with us uh, and likes to mess with us that has no discernible goals? So true. So true. And Keel also had some government um, background, I believe. So that's interesting. Going into the, the research and the formation of there was Project Blue Book. There was also the Robinson panel. I'm sorry, Robertson panel. And it seemed like the Central Intelligence Agency was and still is very interested in this and by, at least by outward appearance, hasn't figured it out yet. 
I think the CIA's interest, and you've also got the FBI, that, that, those are other files. Uh, you can find extensive files on the Maury Island incident in the FBI, uh, what they call the vault. I'm sure they kind of uh, named that purposely close to uh, John Greenwald Jr.'s site, theblackvault.com. Mm -hmm. uh, but they put, uh, they put all their – they put – a whole bunch of UFO files uh, online, uh, the CIA and the FBI. And I think their interest, uh, the FBI's interest seems to have been more uh, if uh, a lot of um, investigators were, uh, uh, present themselves as ha working for the FBI occasionally, and they would go investigate that. Uh, and the CIA, it, it seems more to do with uh, national security, uh, especially when people are leaking classified information. Uh, that seems to be the CIA's main interest. Um, and there's also been speculation. Uh, Jack Brewer, uh, that there were a lot of links between the CIA and NICAP, for instance. A lot of uh, ex-CIA members um, were members of uh, NICAP, starting with uh, Helen Coder. Uh, Roscoe Hillencoter, who was the first director of the CIA. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's speculation that uh, – uh, actually, no, I heard this from Ben Hansen. Uh, ben Hansen says, well, you know, if you want to test somebody's uh, – see how well somebody can keep a secret, give them something like a UFO story and if make it specific. And if that UFO story shows up in the uh, UFO literature, you know that you can't trust this guy. You've got a leak. Mm-hmm. And there was also the danger of um, adversaries infiltrating UFO groups to, you know, if you're talking UFOs, you're, you're talking about, you know, what's being seen in the sky. So, and the possibility of leaked information about um, secret government projects. So, you know, there's the fear that the adversaries could get embedded in a UFO group and start getting leaked information and, um, an idea of uh, covert um, uh, experimental testing. Yeah, I think that's a really good example and explanation by Ben. He's he's a friend of mine, and I I really like his uh, the way the way that he goes about things, and he does have that government background as well. And it does seem like spooks have been infiltrating the UFO community for years, whether that be in the golden era or currently. Why, why does this devoted group of intelligence officials continue to follow the UFO community even when the government disavows it? Um, you know, I think it's, you know, we've got to remember that any organization is made up of individuals. Uh, so I think, you know, maybe some individuals actually, uh, Richard Doty seems to have an actual interest in UFOs and he likes going to conventions. He still does, apparently. Um, and um, so I, I think there's that. Um, and, you know, I think there was a bit of a paranormal arms race between us and Russia during the 80s and early 90s. You know, look out. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think there, there may be some of the disinformation that came down the pipe. Because uh, ufology really went off the rails in the 80s and 90s. There was all there were all kinds of wild stories going around, and especially like the Bob Lazar story. Uh, no matter what you think of that, maybe uh, you know, uh, being kind to Lazar, maybe he was actually shown stuff 
and convinced that this was actually alien tech so that he would spread the story and that the Russians would, and other others would think that uh, we had alien tech. Yeah, it, it's true. And, and I, I'm glad that your book focuses on the golden era or kind of like this age of, it was like, it was like a utopia back then. It seemed like the investigators were more, more worried about getting to the bottom of what was going on than uh, likes or clicks or ratings or the things that seem to muddy the water these days. And John Keel, if I'm not mistaken, also brought the term men in black sort of to the mainstream. And it seems like these men in black have also kind of become part of the UFO phenomenon and is almost kind of, they're stigmatized, but they're also just kind of mixed in with the soup. Um, did you, in your research, did you find a lot of cases where men in black were involved or where investigators were writing these things down? There was a, a, a weird uh, series of memos that came out of the, the Air Force to look out for people who were impersonating Air Force officers. Um, there was a, a one particular case where uh, UFO witnesses were rounded up and told to be quiet, and uh, the Air Force and they, they said they were from the Air Force, and the Air Force had no knowledge of this. Um, I think there was an article in the UFO Investigator where uh, specifically uh, it was mentioned that a CIA officer had intimidated a witness who was going to appear on a a television program or a radio program. Um, So there were those instances. Um, Of course, they play prominently in uh, Keel's book, uh, The Mothman Prophecies. Um, And and Keel seemed to think they were uh, more ethereal (laughs) or more, you know, uh, that that they came from the the ultra-terrestrials. but yeah, the, the 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 definite instances I saw were was specifically mentioned in the Air Force memo. Yeah, and it it's that's informative because it seems that a lot of people have you know it's pretty much Roswell is sort of the where they kick the football off, um, and everybody seemed to be referencing flying saucers after that point, extraterrestrial contact encounters more sightings well, didn't, i'm uh-huh. sorry to interrupt you but that didn't really get going until the 70s roswell was a non-issue during the uh, uh before that uh, it came and went mm-hmm. it was you know it, it was considered to be a weather balloon uh, and uh, the investigators uh, the event it, it happened in uh, july 47 and the private investigators didn't really get going until the 50s mm. That makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. So it was a non-issue to them at the time, uh, which is why I really don't, uh, I don't talk about it at all in the book because it, it just, it didn't exist to them. Um, yeah, Stan Friedman resurrected that in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like, at least in popular culture, that's kind of when, when, when things And it seems like a lot of these government organizations sort of started up right around that same time period. Let's get to one that is more in the um, kind of in the middle of the the playing field, which is the Betty and Barney Hill abduction story and their account. Uh, Do you think 
how much truth is there to that? I mean, there's a lot of ins and outs, the pregnancy test. What was your opinion of that endeavor? I, you know, it's, it's hard not to take uh, Betty Hill at her word. Um, and, uh, and Barney, um, he, he didn't last too long. Uh, he died very shortly after the incident. But, uh, you know, there, there were weird symptoms. Uh, he had uh, warts around his genitals. His, the tops of his shoes were scraped after he had been reported being dragged. Uh, there was, you know, there was a lot of supporting stuff around that. Um, and uh, <clears throat> they, they kept the lid on that story for years. It didn't come out until, um, I forget the author's name, but I think he wrote about it, a, a reporter wrote about it in the uh, Boston Traveler. Uh, I think he somehow got a hold of uh, some of their transcripts from their uh, hypnosis sessions and wrote up uh, an article in the Boston Traveler and it, without uh, the Hill's permission. And with, you know, without them wanting it to, it, it, it went big time. It went international. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, that story it definitely uh, is one of those where, you know, I believe they, I, in my opinion, I believe they experienced something mm -hmm. um, and were telling the truth about what they experienced. Yeah, it's a, it's a freaky case. It is not all nonsense. And in your opinion, you know, a lot of folks now, it seems like with a lot of researchers, this happens. After their death, they are kind of memorialized and turned into martyrs. And I see that with Heineck a lot. Do you think he realized that he was going to have this lifelong, you know, endeavor of becoming the UFO guy and then taking Jacques Vallée under his wing? I mean, they were quite the dynamic duo. Do you think he knew? Yeah. yeah. The, do I, he, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was a good paycheck for a, a long time. He was getting paid as a consultant by the Air Force for the entirety of their investigation um, from like 48 until 69. Um, and in the beginning, he was doing his duty as an astronomer and as a scientist. And, um, uh, you know, he, he was uh, kind of a villain for most, you know, up until the, uh, all the way up until the infamous Swamp Gas uh, episode in uh, 1966 in Michigan. Um, he, what's funny is he actually at the conference, at the news conference where you can, you can see on YouTube, he says marsh gas. I don't hear him say swamp gas at all. I don't know if he said it off camera or if there's, you know, missing footage, but he said marsh gas, mm. but it became swamp gas. Um, so, yeah, he explained away some sightings. As, uh, he, he mentioned a couple of possibilities um, and included uh, the idea that uh, since a lot of these sightings in Michigan were around the swamp, that um, you had gas from the swamp uh, would ignite uh, in one area and then go out and then ignite in another area and then go out uh, and it would give the appearance of movement uh, and he was vilified for that and he shows up in um, the, uh, well, the, the major publications for the two biggest group 
Institute's uh, NICAP and APRO at the time, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization uh, run by Jim and Cora Lorenzen. They put out the APRO bulletin and NICAP put out the UFO investigator. And Heineck is, you know, just shows up as uh, a bit of a villain uh, throughout their publications until after the 60s, especially when uh, James McDonald uh, took him to task for uh, a lot of... Uh, McDonald got a look at uh, a lot of the, the Blue Book files and saw Heineck writing off what he thought were just good sightings with ridiculous uh, explanations, and Heineck would sign off on them. Mm-hmm. And McDonald really hammered him for that. And uh, especially after the Condon report came out, Heineck uh, stood up and said, you know, that... that this should be looked at scientifically. Uh, it seems uh, the Socorro case really turned Heineck around, was one of uh, a few. Um, so, yeah, the idea that he would go... Uh, uh, towards the end of his life, I actually just read... Um, oh, there's a recent biography of him, um, uh, the, the UFO man or... Uh, um, I just read it too. Anyway, there's a recent biography of him, and towards the end of his life, uh, a millionaire actually said, you know, he would give him funding to start a uh, UFO center uh, in Arizona, I think right outside of Phoenix. And he moved from, um, he was in uh, Illinois at the time. Uh, so he moved from Illinois down to uh, Arizona and was going to set up shop down there and just, you know, devote the rest of his life to UFO research. Uh, and th- that kind of fell through and he died shortly thereafter. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess he, he, he sort of accepted his fate, but he actually did a lot in astronomy. I mean, mm. he, he developed... Uh, uh, photographic techniques for satellites. Um, he did a lot for astronomy, and that's all forgotten. Uh, so, yeah, it just seems that uh, if, if you get into this, you, you you end up becoming known for ufology and uh, all the other stuff you do. It seems to be get forgotten. Uh, for instance, James McDonald was a, a brilliant um, uh, atmospheric, atmospheric physicist, uh, and everybody knows him as a UFO guy, so... Yeah. And it does seem like if the longer you're in this, the more that you're vilified for whatever reason, it's if you're in the game long enough, you become the villain. And some people have that belief of some researchers. I'm glad you mentioned the um, Lonnie Zamora incident, uh, the Socorro um, incident, because that kind of leads into, uh, you know, these a, a lot of New Mexican desert cases, um, high desert cases. uh and grizzly cattle mutilations, where do they come into the UFO subject matter, in your opinion? Uh, and I, that, that, that's a slippery slope. <laughs> um, the, the people have done you know, much more. I, I haven't done anything in, in, in terms of that. I'm, I, you know, I'm an historical researcher, um, and that's where I like to stay. Um, you know, so I'm, uh, according to, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it keeps me safe. Um, I, I'm, I'm an agnostic, um, 
And, you know, there are days I, I believe everything. There are days I believe nothing. Actually, a quote from Gray Barker, and <laughs> he was actually quoted as saying, I believe in that, you know, what do you believe, Gray? And he says, I believe in everything and nothing. And uh, I kind of go along with that. Um, and, uh, you know, looking at it as folklore, I think, is uh, really interesting. But anyway, back to cattle mutilations, as I'm trying to avoid the subject. Um, uh, Gabe Valdez uh, did, it was a policeman up in uh, Dulce, New Mexico, um, did, some, uh, thorough, did a lot of investigation into cattle mutilation uh, because it was, you know, in his backyard. <clears throat> and... Uh, he seemed to come to the conclusion that it, it was uh, humans. And an interesting thing about Dulce is they did a, there was this whole thing, uh, Adams for Peace movement, uh, where they were trying to come up with uh, peaceful uh, uses of uh, atomic bombs, essentially. Uh, the idea of uh, blowing up uh, uh, nuclear weapons to divert hurricanes, uh, I think, uh, uh, our, our former president uh, actually floated that idea, uh, which is not feasible. Mm -hmm. uh, but another thing they they did up around Dulce was uh, it was called Project Gas Buggy. So essentially, it was uh, atomic fracking. They they buried an atomic uh, weapon and blew it up. Uh, and unfortunately, the gas they were hoping to release was all irradiated, and therefore useless um <clears throat> so you've got a source of radiation right up there in dulce and then all of a sudden you've got cattle mutilation so there's speculation that part of that was uh, government testing uh, to see you know if our uh, food stock has been poisoned by radiation and plus uh, that whole area you know all the nuclear testing in uh, nevada uh, is not too far from the whole area where, uh, you know, the, the winds went all over Colorado and all the, all over that area. So the idea that they're testing for, uh, uh, you know, contamination is, is, is not that far-fetched. Mm -hmm. um, but then if you go with the idea that the phenomena is reflective, <laughs> I think other people have this, uh, who specialize in cattle mutilation, um, so yeah, that's as far as I go with cattle mutilation. I hear you. That's it's a it's a very slippery slope. And Gabe Valdez added a very interesting uh, trump card to the mix with his research. Another case that I wanted to ask your opinion about is one of my favorite cases. And in 1952, there was a Flatwoods monster that seemed to terrify. Gosh, six kids, a mom, a dog, and, and pretty much the whole world. What are your yeah. thoughts of that case? Yeah, well, okay, let me, uh, let me tell you about my, my journey first. Uh, mm -hmm. I actually stay, stayed in Magdalena, New Mexico. Magdalena is where Lonnie Zamora was, uh, I think he was born and raised. I actually spoke to people that knew Lonnie Zamora. He's the guy who got the... The, the policeman who uh, saw the craft during the Socorro incident. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the great quotes uh, somebody told me at a party was uh, Lonnie was interviewed and said, uh, the interviewer asked him, sir, were you in a state of confusion? He says, no, sir, I was in the state of New Mexico. <laughs> um, 
But anyway, uh, on my way back to Queens, I drove back. Uh, so I stopped at Roswell, and then uh, my next stop was West Virginia. So I stopped in Clarksburg, uh, excuse me, in uh, uh, Sutton County, West Virginia, mm. uh, which is uh, around the Flatwoods, where, and I stopped at the Flatwoods Monster Museum. Uh, and, you know, uh, it, it's got some original newspaper clippings, uh, I think uh, original artwork uh, done of the monster. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I spoke with the, the, the gentleman who runs the uh, Flatwoods Monsters Museum. Uh, so I'm a big fan of that case. And, um, uh, and then afterwards I stopped in Clark, uh, I stopped at Point Pleasant, went to the Mothman Museum and I stopped at the Clarksburg Harrison Public Library and, uh, got to, uh, peruse the uh, Gray Barker collection and uh, talk with David Houchin, who was a curator there. Um, so it, it was an amazing journey back to Queens. Uh, but the Flatwoods monster case, it's uh, always fascinated me. That's, it's such a weird one. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think it, uh, it, there's speculation it was an owl, but they saw it underneath a branch and normally you would see an owl sitting on top of a branch. They used the branch to estimate its height, I think at 12 feet. Um, and a thing that gets left out, you know, everybody talks about the monster, but what gets left out is that they also saw, uh, I think it was a big uh, half dome glowing uh, the size of a house that this creature or robot or whatever it was uh, made an arc towards uh, after it released gas and hissed at them and uh, uh, they ran screaming but this thing made a, a an arc towards what could have been some sort of craft uh, according to the witnesses uh, so it's it's a really interesting case and gray barker uh, did a, a really good investigation of it uh, interviewed all the witnesses and got their stories and uh, uh, Ivan T. Sanderson also investigated the case. Uh, his speculation uh, that there were a whole bunch of fireballs seen, uh, I think, traveling uh, northeast to southwest uh, across a lot of states. Um, and his speculation, I think there, he counted six, and his speculation on the Long John Nebel show was that uh, – one of these crafts, uh, the air was so polluted over West Virginia that one of the crafts got into trouble and uh, had to crash land, and that was the one with the monster in it. So, but it, it's yeah, it's a really cool case. I mean, and and the monster is absolutely iconic. It really is. It's it's one of those cases that I mean, just 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 no rhyme or reason to, and it doesn't fit in any of the boxes, and you know it's just wild. It's just wild that everybody was so horrified by this, this Frankenstein looking robotic extraterrestrial more or less. And I had never heard that suspenseful. I, that, that the air, I was kind of in suspense about that, that the air was actually polluted. I had never heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah. West Virginia's cold country. So, Oh, that could explain I, it. I, I think, think that was what it, what Sanderson was talking about. Um, 
But, uh, oh, yeah, I, I want to mention uh, Seth Breedlove, uh, documentarian, uh, just did a, he did a, a documentary, not just, it was probably a couple of years ago, did a documentary on the Flatwoods case, and he actually interviewed two of the witnesses who were just kids, uh, Ed and Fred May. Uh, so you can see like a modern interview of these two guys talking about the case. Um, so I, yeah, I highly recommend that documentary just for that. And the, the fact that you've got two of the original witnesses still alive today talking about the case and, you know, they stick to their story. One thing they do say though, is that, uh, the reports of everybody getting sick, uh, were false. Uh, which is interesting because that seems to be a key element of the case where, you know, they, they reported that the witnesses were vomiting and that the the dog died. There's actually three versions of what happened to the dog. Uh, one, he crawled under a porch, one, he vomited on the porch, and one, he died on the porch. So, uh, but yeah, according to the maze, uh, the, that part was uh, false. Interesting. Hmm. I never knew that. Uh, as we sort of wrap up here, where can listeners delve into your accumulation of all this research, the Flying Saucer Investigators, your book? How do you recommend they get their hands on this book and support your research efforts? Oh, uh, Amazon.com. It's uh, available in Kindle, uh, audiobook, hardcover, softcover. Uh, I think uh, flyingdiscpress.com, you can get a copy there as well. And I will write a weekly blog for Martin, a written version at podcastufo.com. And I do an audio version of uh, Martin posts on his uh, YouTube site. Uh, Martin Willis Podcast UFO will probably get you there. That is great. That is great. And as as we as we wrap up charles i can't thank you enough for being so patient with me i had i had some family emergencies and technical uh, drenchings <laughs> and other things oh, it's all good no it's been a, it's been a great conversation ryan and I, I know you got a flat tire today so i i really appreciate your 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 diligence your research and your ability to just kind of work with me and get this done i appreciate it no problem Thanks so much, and I hope we can talk again. Absolutely. All right, Brian. You have a great night. Take care. You too. Cheers. Okay, we are off, and I will, uh, as soon as this is up, I'll send you a link, and I can, I don't know what you prefer. I can send you a YouTube link, um, an Anchor audio-only link, um, or I can send it uh, in a few other formats. What do you usually like? YouTube, YouTube will be fine whatever's easiest for you that's what i'll do charles thanks so much my man i hope you have a great afternoon you too ryan cheers take care well, there you have it ladies and gentlemen charles lear someone who has done the work done the research and he's really connected a lot of dots between ufos their study their traits and you know the history the history of it after Blue Book got started, you know, this established a whole different time for the United States and how UFOs were viewed in popular culture and the media. And it's great that people have the capacity to go back as historical researchers and they, they continue to bring things to light that really just 
haven't been. I, for example, I didn't know that uh, Heineck never said swamp gas, for example. I didn't know that the Flatwood Monster case, uh, people didn't get as sick as they claimed. There's a lot that um, Charles knows that the average person doesn't know, and I'm really glad that he worked with me. It was a real trial and error time uh, connecting. I was up in Utah's Uinta Basin doing some research at spacewolfresearch.com and the mishaps with technology were beyond my control and uh, poor Charles even today had a flat tire on his way to do this podcast interview and he had to rent a city bike to get to the interview on time. Anyway, long story short, the entire time along the way we kept communication lines open he did everything he could to make this happen and I think you guys should make it happen that you get this book of his on your shelves read it enjoy it and continue to support his research until next time keep your eyes to the skies feet on the ground but don't forget to take a look around Time machine, third eye feeling like an evising blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evising.